Brothers and sisters, I invite you to join me in your Bibles, uh, turning to Luke chapter 6. Our passage today is Luke 6, verses 12 to 26. Continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. If you will join me in the scriptures with God's help, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, with a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sire, Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We come now to what Luke describes as a sermon given in a plain or on a level place. Whether this is the same sermon as what we commonly describe as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, uh, that is a matter of some debate. Certainly the outline is very similar. The overall message is largely the same, though Matthew's account is certainly longer. As far as the setting goes, Matthew has Jesus up on a mountain. Luke has Jesus coming down from the mountain. That's not really a problem. Uh, this could have easily been on a, on a large plateau that Jesus preached from to the great multitudes as he made his way down from the, from, from the mountain. But whether you have two accounts dealing with the same event or two different episodes where he is delivering uh, basically the same sermon, 
we can't be too sure. I'm inclined to think it's probably the same account and that Luke's account is, or it's the same, same occasion, and that Luke's account um, is, is simply more uh, concise, more condensed. That seems to fit overall with the way Luke tends to approach things. Well, before we get to the sermon, we have the calling of the twelve. And actually, before we get to the calling of the twelve, we have Jesus pulling an all-nighter. Except that he does not stay up all night long for the reasons that you or I might find ourselves staying up all night most of the time. He is not up all night because he gets called for the late shift. Uh, Young people, he is not pulling an all-nighter because he procrastinated and waited to the last minute and he's got work due uh, the next morning. He is not up just because he cannot sleep. No, Jesus has something here that is so urgent, so solemn, so significant, that it demanded that a whole night be given over in solitary prayer to God. Our Lord is on the precipice of a a major decision, the choosing of the twelve, those who are going to go on to form the foundation of the church together with the prophets, the Lord Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so he prays all night, the passage says, he continued in prayer to God. So serious was the task at hand. He has very, very important work to do, but not without prayer. Only then is he prepared to to think about moving forward. Well, brothers and sisters, that's very instructive for us. Consider this. If the Son of God faced situations that deserve disciplined, concerted, uh, fervent, Uh, Pour out your heart before God all night long kind of prayer. How much more so do we need to seek the face of God when there are major decisions looming before us, especially in the face of momentous, life-altering decisions? Are there major decisions that you are facing today? Do you find yourself perplexed about which way you should turn? in some matter in your life, what direction you should go, what course of action the Lord would have you to take. Do you find yourself thinking, well, should I consider looking into this kind of job or how should I handle this uh, relational issue that I'm, I'm facing in my life or how can I serve in the church or how can I grow in matters of personal holiness? Young people, Do you find yourself thinking uh, whether you should pursue a particular relationship in your life or what the Lord would have you do with the rest of your life? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now I ask you, how do you do that in practical terms? What does that look like expressed in your life? Leaning not on your own understanding, acknowledging him 
in all of your ways. Well, we see it here. You pray. You pray. And there are seasons in our lives when we need to set aside special time for concentrated, vigorous, extended time and prayer after the model of our Lord. Only then, only after an entire night of prayer is Jesus prepared to move forward. Only then does he choose these 12 men that he names apostles. This is a word that carries the idea of someone who is a commissioned agent. They're an authorized representative of someone that's greater than themselves. The United States has ambassadors. We send out ambassadors to to other nations, to to China and to Namibia and to Guatemala and to, to other places around the world, and they act on behalf of the nation that they represent. Well, that's the very idea. That's the principle that is at work behind the idea of apostles. Jesus said of them, whoever receives the one I send receives me. They carry his authority as they go throughout the world. And we see in in the scriptures that there are special requirements to qualify as an apostle. We might say to qualify as a, as a capital A apostle. There's a more general sense in which the word apostle is used at times in the scriptures as, as someone who is sent out in the same way that we, we see the word a deacon used of the whole body of Christ. The word de- deacon simply means servant. And the Bible instructs all members of the body to deacon one another, to serve one another. And then there is the office of deacon, those who are specially set apart by the church to be lead servants, you might say, before the body. Well, the same can be said of apostles. There is the office of apostle, and that is what is particularly in view here. They had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. They were accompanied by signs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says as he is defending his ministry before the church at Corinth there, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So those were authenticating marks of their ministry. My brothers and sisters, on those two criteria alone, having seen the risen Lord and those signs and wonders following them, there are no apostles today. They had a special role in laying the foundation of the church. That foundation has already been laid. We are not going back and laying the foundation of the church. In fact, you can see uh, the newness of what Christ described. If you were with us last week in that parable of the new wine and the, and the new wineskins, it continues to be expanded upon here and that there are 12 apostles paralleling uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is doing something new here. In fact, he, he, he says in other places that the 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Jew that was there that day would have recognized the significance of that number. Did you hear him? That he chose 12. He chose 12 apostles. Now, three of these men 
we already know, Simon, James, and John, the others we will get to know a little bit more as we go along in this study. Two things I want to call your attention to about this list for now. First, these are unremarkable men. There is nothing particularly notable about them. They don't have any special qualifications or skills or training or education. The one remarkable thing about them is just how unremarkable they really are. That's an encouragement to me. I hope it is to you. In fact, the more we look at them, the more we examine their lives, the more we, we see just how much they really are like us. Some of them are full of bravado. They they have a penchant for putting themselves first. They think too highly of themselves. Uh, Peter overestimates the degree of his fidelity uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're men who leave everything behind. And they put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now the one exception to that, this is number two, our other observation. The one exception is Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor there at the end of the list. You might find yourself thinking as you read his name in that postscript, who became a traitor. If Jesus is praying, if Jesus has just stayed up all night seeking the face of God, why do you have a traitor in the bunch? If Christ has sought the will of God, why does he have someone who is going to later renege on his commitment to the Lord, even going so far as to seek his very life? Well, brothers and sisters, that's the, that's the point. In the counsel of God's will, God the Father determines that God the Son should choose the Son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The Father is leading the Son. That's the amazing thing here. The choice of Judas was not an accident. It was not a mistake. The inclusion of Judas is the result of Christ's conscious choice guided by the very will of God. I think there's actually a note of encouragement here for the saints in that Jesus prayed Jesus sought the will of God, and in the counsel of God's will, Jesus chose Judas. Brothers and sisters, we do not pray in order that we may find some kind of trouble-free life. We do not seek the face of God in order to escape trials and tribulations. That would be to ignore the clear teaching of the scriptures. We pray in order that we might walk according to the will of God, that we might live lives pleasing to the Father, that we might do whatever the Lord would have us to do, wherever he might take us, knowing that he does all things well. Jesus chose the twelve with the same confidence that Abraham said when he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Shall not the judge of all the earth Do what is right. And we can get off of our knees and we can come away from the prayer closet with that same confidence 
submitting ourselves to the very will of God. Now, if you look at verses 17 to 19, they show us there are really, uh, there are really three uh, distinct groups that Jesus is ministering to here on this day. Uh, moving if from, from the inside out, first you have those 12 apostles. And from there, you find a great crowd of disciples. Now, that would include everyone that counted themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, some certainly following more closely than others. And then from there you broaden the horizon and you find a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And they are there uh, to listen and to be healed of their diseases, to be set free from, from unclean spirits. There's this tremendous crowd that is pressing in on Jesus Christ but notice that in, in typical fashion, the scripture focuses our attention not on the mighty works, but on his preaching. For this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus said, I came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So having identified the leaders of his people, he, he goes on to lay out in this sermon, this stunning picture of what life in the kingdom of God really looks like. He shows what the practices that mark his disciples are, what kind of self-understanding they have, what sort of place they can expect to find within a broader world that rejects the lordship of Christ, and then also what they can expect to find at the very last day when the Lord will set all wrongs right. It's very important that we make some distinctions here when we look at this passage. It's important that we look particularly at who Jesus' audience is. If you look at verse 20 in your Bible, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And that's important. That tells us important, something important about what audience is in view. This is not primarily an evangelistic sermon. It is aimed at his followers. It is, it's aimed at his followers. What that means for us as we examine this text that is to come is that this is not telling us, well, here's how you come into the kingdom. He is not outlining for us a list of prerequisites if you would like to be included as one of his disciples. He's preaching to his disciples. So this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. He's saying this is the value system of the kingdom of God. This is how those who have experienced the new birth and who are part of the kingdom of God can be identified. It is what we have come to know as the Beatitudes. That word means blessed. What does that mean? You see all kinds of versions of what it means to be blessed in the world today. We're not interested in what the world has to say about the word blessed. In biblical terms, to be blessed means to possess an inner happiness. To be blessed means to possess a state of contentedness and joy. It is a soul-level satisfaction 
something that is found only in the knowledge of God through the person and work of his son. To be blessed is to be a man who's found as a result of God's free grace an irrevocable happiness, something that is not dependent on your worldly condition. It's something that we know in part in this life and that we'll come to know in full in the life that is to come. Now, with that in view, we come to the Beatitudes themselves and we see something that is truly striking here. Jesus describes the blessed man in terms that look altogether different from how the world describes blessing. It is a stunning picture. We're going to look at four different terms that fill out the biblical definition of blessing from the Father. But I just want to ask you this before we get into this. If you could choose four words to describe the blessed life, what would you pick? What springs to mind when you think about what it means to be blessed? What sort of things does your mind fly to? What kind of things do your heart, does your heart say when you ask the question, if I could just have this, then I, I would be truly blessed. I'd be really happy. Notice that nowhere here does Jesus talk about riches or worldly possessions or personal gratification or the approval of man as the hallmarks of blessedness. In fact, it's the very opposite through and through. Jesus says, in contrast, blessed are you who are poor, hungry, who weep, and are hated. It is entirely upside down from the vision of the world. It is as contradictory from the vision of the world as you could possibly have. So this is a text that is designed to radically reorientate the way that we think. For the people of God, it is it's designed to inject hope and expectation and, and joy as we wait the fulfillment of this spiritual blessing that is ours. For the unbeliever, as we'll come to see, is designed to show you the vanity of a self-centered, worldly-minded existence, to shake you free of that, to shake you free of spiritual short-sightedness and to point you to Christ who alone is the source of everlasting blessing and joy. Now, each one of these could be taken individually. We could spend a week on each one of these. But if you look at them, you'll see the way that they're organized, that with each blessing, there is a parallel woe that accompanies it. They run in parallel. If you look at verse 20, for example, it says, Blessed are you who are poor. And then down in verse 24 it is followed by, but woe to you who are rich. You have, blessed are you who are hungry now, and then you have, woe to you who are full now, and, and so on. So for each pronouncement of blessing, there is a corresponding woe, and they're, they're meant to be understood together. Each one is the complement of, of the other. So we're going to look at them together this morning. Look at the first one with me in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. The church, who is the poor? In Jesus' mind. In the scriptures, we might say that the poor are those who have nothing 
to fall back on except for God. They have absolutely nothing to depend on except for the Lord. And we're not thinking in purely economic terms. Although that that idea might be included here, it, it at least gives us a kind of framework that we can hang our thoughts on. And it is often the case that it's the poor, financially speaking, or the those who are marginalized in this world that are often uh, more prepared to see uh, their neediness. You have that picture in the scriptures, but Jesus is not baptizing a particular socioeconomic class uh, when he says, blessed are the poor, as if to say, well, it's only when your bank account gets below a certain dollar figure that you're really in the kingdom of God. No. That is not what he's saying. That would be to entirely miss the point here. We are talking about the state of your heart. We're talking about the condition of the inner man. Matthew makes that clear when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about those who know that they are spiritual paupers. They're poor, spiritually speaking. They know they're absolutely destitute, apart from the grace of God. Paul says this, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. There are many in this world who would look at the basis of their confidence standing before the judgment seat of God, and and, and they would think to themselves, well, I I try to be a good person. I am a good person. But you see how the scriptures overturn that way of thinking. They overturn that way of thinking. Those who are blessed by God, those who receive his commendation, are the poor. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. Poverty of spirit is the keynote here. That's where the the stress is. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is ultimately a man's attitude toward himself. What do I see when I look in the mirror? How do I understand who I really am before the face of God? Now, friends, if you will look in the mirror of God's word, you will understand yourself as you really are. You will come to understand yourself as God understands who you are. A man who's poor in spirit is therefore a humble man. He has no grounds for pride or self-assurance, and he confesses that freely. He confesses the poverty of of his soul. He's conscious of his sinful condition. You think of a man like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. He is crippled. He is lame. He is, a, he is poor. He is a beggar. There's nothing he can do to hide it, and there's no attempts to do so. He confesses freely. I cannot do anything for myself. All I can do is cast myself on the mercy of another. And so he does. He's poor in spirit. And it's no accident that we start here. It's no accident that we start with poverty 
of spirit because this is the starting place of a living relationship with God in Christ. It's foundational in that this is the first point of awareness we have to have about ourselves if we're going to ever possess our need of Jesus Christ, of his blood that was spilled on our behalf, our spiritual bankruptcy. There's nothing I have, there's nothing I am that can commend myself to God. I am poor. I am. You see how at root, it's really true of every soul, of every person on the face of the earth. It's just a matter of those who understand it before God, who confess it before him. Thomas Boston says, till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with, a, with an opinion of his self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. So this is the opposite of the world's dogma, that we should look for something within, that we have within ourselves everything we need. You can be all that you want to be. Just look within yourself. That's where the resource is. That's where the wellspring is. If you're lacking anything, it's a greater sense of self-confidence, more self-assuredness, more self-esteem, more self-love. Friends, that's the mind of the natural man. He denies his innate spiritual poverty. You have a picture of this in uh, the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says to them, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They denied their spiritual poverty. That's what the first beatitude is dealing with. Blessed are those who come confessing their true spiritual condition before the living God who promises to fill us with all of his mercy, with all of his love, to be all that we need. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? What does the text say? For yours is the kingdom of God. And there's something wonderful, something distinctive about this, this first beatitude that sets it apart from the others that follow and that it's spoken of in the here and now. It's distinctive in that way. It tells of a present tense reality, a present tense truth. Yours is the kingdom of God. Not yours will be the kingdom of God, but yours today is the kingdom of God. Again, that is tremendous grounds for encouragement, brothers and sisters. The Bible says Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Well, so too have we been brought to the kingdom of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Yours is the kingdom of God, inasmuch as you have confessed your poverty of spirit before him. Now the rich, on the other hand, Jesus says, have received their reward. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Hear this, dear ones. Riches and wealth, they do afford some measure of comfort and consolation, but it's a temporary one. It's a temporary comfort. If that is the source of your hope, 
is that if that is what all of your trust is laid up in, if that is what you are pursuing, if that is what you bow down before, if that is what you idolize, if that is what you worship, Jesus says here, you have received your payment. All of the comfort and possessions and reward you will ever experience is in your hand today. You already have it. It's the same thing that Mary said back in chapter 1. The rich he has sent away empty. Empty. The rich, and again we're talking here about the attitude of the heart, not just how many possessions we have, and we could look at uh, people like uh, Joseph of Arimathea or Lydia or others in the scriptures to see that there are exceptions to this. There are well-to-do men and women in the scriptures who steward their resources well and hold them in the proper position with regard to the treasure that we have in the Lord. The rich, Christ speaks of here, have no need. They live their lives independently of him without any consciousness of their need for his mercy and his grace. And so the Bible says they have received their consolation. Now, church, with each one of these, I want you to be challenged and encouraged to to ask yourself, on what kind of scale do I measure my life? Are, Are the values of my life consistent with the values of the kingdom of God? Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Beloved, what do you hunger for? What do you desire? What do you long for today? What does your soul crave right now? Again, Matthew gives us the fuller sense here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What righteousness does Jesus speak of? The scriptures talk about a righteousness that comes by grace through faith. By faith alone we are justified and reconciled to the Father through the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. This is what we call imputed righteousness. It comes by faith alone. Paul describes this when he talks about his desire to be found in him, to be found in Jesus Christ, not possessing a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But you look at the context here in Luke chapter 6, and the context demands a different understanding. Jesus is speaking to his Disciples, He is speaking to those who by virtue of their faith have been reconciled. They have a living relationship with the Father. They already possess that imputed righteousness, what we sometimes describe as an alien righteousness. But now he draws our attention to another facet of the believer's life. The believer, he says, is someone who is marked by a hunger for personal righteousness. You might say for holiness, for a sanctified heart and mind. The true believer, while he knows he has already been set free from the condemnation of sin, he's been set free from its reigning power, he longs to be free from sin in every respect. He longs to to be free from the desire for sin. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. 
when you, when you look at his spiritual hunger pangs, they're to be transformed in the same image of Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to another to another. Jesus says of these, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who hunger. Now you might hear this and you might think to yourself, well, I am so weak. I don't have that fervency of hunger that you are describing. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I find it to be a law, Paul says, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Yes, but can you say by God's grace, I long to be holy? I long to be holy. What kind of spiritual appetite do you have? Do you want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? David said, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And the Lord has said, you shall be satisfied. Christ never bids his disciples to come to him in vain. He will satisfy us if we will seek him. He will satisfy his children. John told the, or Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him for a drink and he would have given you living water, the water of life. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Well, that promise will be perfectly fulfilled in eternity. In Isaiah 25, the Lord says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. That's not just talking about food, brothers and sisters. You have a picture there of everlasting satisfaction. Now jump down to verse 25. This is the contrast. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now here you have a picture of those who pass their days in a state of self-sufficiency. They are sated with the pleasures of sin and the world. But look at what it says. If this is you, friend, look at what it says. It says you shall be hungry. What does that mean? This is so important. It means that you will find no eternal provision for you when you stand before the face of God. There will be no spiritual feast supplied for you. You will be hungry. There is an urgency that attends these things. Do not deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you will deal with matters like this some other time. That is exactly what happened with the rich young fool. One day when Jesus was teaching, he said, Take care and be on on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, 
This man, he was consumed with that very thing. He was consumed with covetousness and possessions. What did he say? He said to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid out for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He had an abundance of possessions in this life, but he went into eternity hungry. Third, Jesus says, Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. It almost sounds oxymoronic in one sense. Blessed are you, happy are the sad. Now that does not mean that believers should go around Uh, perpetually morose, long faces all the time. We we saw that uh, last week, that the presence of Christ in the life of the believer produces the spirit of gladness and joy in the hearts of his people. But at the same time, we do have real cause for weeping and mourning today. We mourn over our own sin, just as Paul said, O wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death, even as we confess the same hope that he had? Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We weep over the evils of this world, things like abortion, the murder of the pre-born, the perversion of God's creation, his design for man and woman. We weep over Injustice, especially injustice against God's people. We weep over the persecution of God's church around the world. We mourn over the way God's name is blasphemed among the nations. There are many reasons to weep and to mourn. But as we do, we hold on to this confidence that we shall laugh our sorrow shall be turned into everlasting joy. There is going to come a day of eschatological end times reversal when the Lord Jesus Christ himself will overturn all evil. He will sanctify us completely. He will vindicate his saints. He will grant to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. We have a whole psalm uh, dedicated to this theme of reversal in the scriptures, a small-scale depiction of of what awaits us as the people of God in Psalm 126. It's one of the psalms of ascents, uh, one of the the psalms that the people would uh, sing and use to worship as they were going up to the annual feast, Uh, but it describes the Lord's mercy uh, that he showed to his covenant people, something that was so uh, tremendous, something that was um, of such outlandish proportions that it almost seemed unbelievable. I want to read it to you. It's a short psalm, Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. 
Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And here's where we can join in with the psalmist's prayer and take up his confidence as well. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you belong to Christ? You ever find yourself weeping? Take heart, beloved. You shall laugh. You shall laugh. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Maybe there are some here today and you don't know at all what we are talking about. You have never experienced the kind of sorrow that verse 21 describes. If that's the case, I, I want you to hear the warning of verse 25. It's a sober word, again. I want you to hear this. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now again, Christ is not saying that it is always wrong to laugh. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, the Bible says. What is in view here is the kind of superficial levity that has no regard for the things of God, no concern for eternity, no concern for the state of your soul, no concern for the glory of God. And in that way, it is a pompous, arrogant kind of laughter. It's something that that springs from a self-centeredness. It's something that springs from a heart of, of someone that refuses to do business with God. Of these, the Bible says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see the tragic reality of that kind of spiritual short-sightedness. The Bible says of hell that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So everyone is going to mourn. Everyone. Either we mourn now and we laugh later, or we laugh now and we mourn later. Either we mourn now for a little while and then laugh for an eternity, or we laugh now for a little while. And we mourn for an eternity. What should you do if you're in that position today where you have recognized that you have treated the things of God as trifles? You've lived your life for yourself, for your own ends, no sense of sorrow for your sin? The book of James tells us, it says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You come to Christ. You come to him in repentance and faith. 
and he will give you tears. He will give you sorrow for your sin. He will change your heart forever. He will give you the hope of everlasting joy that belongs to those who know him. And finally, Christ says, blessed are those, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. And you see how he qualifies this here by the phrase, on account of the Son of Man. If on account of your identification with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are hated by the world, you're blessed by the Father. Jesus told his disciples this over and over again in so many terms. Don't expect to be loved by the world. Don't expect to find a place in this world. John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we come to the one imperative, the one command that leaps off the page, no, no pun intended here, in light of all that it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a member of his kingdom, look at what the Bible says. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, church, we've already seen there's, there's no attempt to whitewash things in the scriptures. The, the Bible has already affirmed that we have a good reason for, for weeping in the world. We have every reason to shed tears in this world, but it also insists that that is not all that there is to be said on the matter. You also have every reason to rejoice. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Worthy to, to, to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas sang hymns to living God at midnight while they were bound in chains for the gospel. So in the midst of your poverty and hunger and tears and persecution, rejoice. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You have a great reward waiting for you in heaven. Jesus says, go ahead, join to those tears the joy of the Lord. Even go so far as to leap, leap for joy. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the first reason that we are given here to rejoice the heavenly reward that we have in knowing Christ is inestimable. It is great. Reason number two, for so, they did to their, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And you see what he is saying here. This is the way that it has always been for the people of God. It is reminiscent of Peter's words 
in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is simply the way things are on this side of glory. You stand on a long line of people who have been persecuted for identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his people. False prophets, on the other hand, are quite at home in the world. In the book of Jeremiah, it says the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? And this is what Jesus is getting at here when he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Those who do find a place in the world, who are at home in the world, who are spoken well of by the world, who get along with the world. If you can live your life in this world and there is no friction uh, with those around you, woe to you. Woe to you. And so, beloved, we come to the conclusion. All humanity can be divided into two groups. You have the rich and the poor, the full and the hungry, the laughing and the mournful, those who have the approval and approbation of the world, and those who are despised on the account of the Son of Man. The inescapable question that follows is where do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves? Can we see a measure of these marks in our own lives? Are you poor and hungry? Do you weep and are you hated for Christ's sake? Friends, you're blessed. Or are you running headlong down the broad path of destruction? Are you delighting in the things of the world? Are you content to have what this life affords, glorying in your own passions and pleasures at home in the world? Where do you find yourself? God is calling us to live in light of eternity. The Lord help us in this. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you today. God, we find ourselves both encouraged and convicted. Lord, your word is perfect and it is good in that it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God, we confess our sin before you. We We pray that you would purify us of our double-mindedness. Lord, I pray that you would set us free from the love of the world, from the love of self, from the love of sin, that you would cleanse us, O God. Lord, we do ask that you'd help us to see ourselves as we really are, poor in spirit. Lord, that apart from the working of your grace within us, we are ill-equipped and unprepared to stand before your throne. We need your mercy. 
We need your grace, O God. God, we pray that our lives would be marked by the values of your kingdom, that we would esteem what you esteem, that we would hunger after the things that that please you. God, I thank you for the promise of everlasting satisfaction that we find in your word, that we discover in knowing you. God, I thank you for the strong hope we have that after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And so to you, O God, be dominion forever and ever. Amen.